because reward-based learning isn't based on the behavior itself. It's based on the reward. So if the reward is not that great, we start to become disenchanted with the behavior itself without having to force ourselves. It's kind of, I think of this as like, you know, your kid, you take your kid to the mall and um, she or he goes, sits on Santa Claus's lap, you know, and you're like, oh, great, I'm going to get the Christmas list and all this. And they reach for the beard and we're like, no, right? Because as soon as they pull on Santa Claus's beard, the gig is up. You can't go back and be like, hey, don't, you know, just forget that Santa Claus is real. It's over. And the same thing is true in our brains. When they start to see really clearly that the cigarettes don't taste very good, you can't undo that. I had a guy who'd been smoking 40 years, and he's like, how did I not notice this before? Hi, everyone. You were just listening to Dr. Judson Brewer, the author of The Craving Mind, and also a TED speaker who has had over... 10 million views of his 2016 TED Talk, which I will put in the links below. I am so honored to have had the opportunity to interview Dr. Brewer, and we had a great conversation regarding mindfulness, meditation, overcoming addictions, including smoking, uh, overeating, and a variety of different things. And I find it so insightful that there will definitely be a second interview with Dr. Brewer. And I hope you enjoy this because I certainly did. Have a great day, everyone. Welcome to the Healthy Human Revolution podcast. I'm Dr. Lori Marvis, and today I'm so honored to welcome Dr. Judson Brewer. How are you? I'm good. Well, we are so excited to hear from you. Um, everyone, we're going to learn a lot more about him. I typically do a prologue to the interview, so they'll hear more information about your experience. But you are basically what we describe as a mindfulness, I would say a guru, and you're a psychiatrist, you're an MD, PhD, which I don't even know how many years that took. <laughs> More than I care to think about. <laughs> and, um, but also habit change and, and using mindfulness for addiction. And that's how I first came across um, your information, looking for help with patients with smoking. And I was so intrigued. Um, but can you tell us a little bit about your background, how you came into mindfulness, medicine, and all this, these amazing things? There's so many questions I have to ask you. So sure. I'm kind of an accidental tourist in the mindfulness field. I, I got into this just personally uh, because I was pretty stressed out right at the beginning of medical school. And it seemed like a perfect time to try something new in addition to trying medical school. So my first day of medical school, I started meditating. It just seemed like a you know, good transition time. And and it, to be honest, for the first six months or so, I fell asleep. You know, I'd listen to these cassette tapes of meditation and fell asleep for most of the time, but then started, you know, getting the hang of it a little bit more, staying awake, and then even learning that, wow, you know, I could, I could meditate during boring medical school lectures. <laughs> That's, and so tell us what, so that, and we kind of mentioned this a little bit before when we, before we started, what does it mean to meditate? Because for some people, like if, you know, you try to sit there and you're like, you list, like you said, you listen to the tapes and they say, be mindful of your different parts of your body and your mind wanders and you hear a noise and you're just like, ooh, a squirrel, you know, something like that. What does it mean to meditate? And what does it mean that you suddenly were, or you over time were able to change? What, what is that? What's occurring, I guess? 
Yes. So and with, there are many ways we can unpack that. And I would answer that very differently now, uh, over 20 years later than what I would have answered back then. I had a very different concept of what meditation was. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, there's a lot more that's known about it, both pragmatically and scientifically as well. Uh, so what I would say now is meditation is a, and this meditation can take many different forms, but it's a way to help us start to train our minds to uh, be present in the, in the present moment, as in notice these habitual tendencies of our minds to be lost in thought, you know, like the squirrel, oh, you know, distracted here or there, whatever that proverbial squirrel is, to notice that push and pull and to bring some balance through simply being with the experience through being aware of it. So what I would say is these, these meditation practices help train our minds to, um, to learn when they've wandered, to learn when they've gotten caught up in a thought or an emotion or you know, avoiding something or a craving, and to um, be able to see that we can actually be with whatever it, it is rather than running away from it or getting sucked into it. Hmm. So it's more than just the practice of sitting in a quiet space and meditating. It's actually using it in other parts of where you're actively involved in something, but you're, you've trained your mind to react differently? The meditation can help us start to see the habitual tendencies of our minds. Mm-hmm. And so here's where, this is actually where I started learning how this applies to behavior change. If we don't understand how our minds work, if we don't understand these habitual tendencies to get lost or, you know, in thought or to avoid unpleasant emotions or to do this or that, you know, it's like this black box. We're going to not know where to even start. But if we can, uh, if we have a space where there's not a ton of stuff happening at once, like sitting down during meditation, we can actually start to use that time to map out how our minds work. And that's what often meditation helps us do is to notice, oh, here's this, and this is linked to this, or every time I had this thought, I had this emotional reaction. As we start to map out these, all of these different, I think of these as habit loops, uh, following on uh, Charles Duhigg's work uh, around habit formation. That's really, uh, I would say, a, a tremendous amount of what meditation and mindfulness training is for, is to help us really understand how our minds work, because they will naturally incline themselves away from unhealthy habits. That's, that's the hypothesis that I would put forward. So it's almost like you're, you're starting out, you're kind of tuning into your own radio, right? So you're like listening finally, and I guess mm-hmm. adjusting to where you can actually understand. And can you explain a little bit? I mean, I'm a huge fan of Charles Duhigg. I've emailed him back and forth. And so he probably thinks I'm one of his stalkers. I'm like, but I have so much information. I need to ask you to <laughs> use this with patients and stuff. But um, with that, can you describe what the habit loop is and how, that, how did you decide to interface these two things together? Simply put, I think of what what are necessary and sufficient conditions. And so there are three aspects of a habit loop. You need a trigger, a behavior, and a reward. And this was, I don't know if Dewey talks about this in his book, but this was actually set up evolutionarily as a way to help us remember where food is. So it's it's actually a very, the most scientifically validated learning process known, uh, you know, full stop. Mm-hmm. So we, you know, if we're on the proverbial savanna foraging for food, uh, we see a food source, we eat it, and there's, you know, it has calories in it. 
this signal comes from our stomach and spritzes dopamine in our brain that says, remember what you ate and where you found it. So the trigger is, you know, seeing food, the behavior is eating the food, and then the reward from a neurologic standpoint is getting that dopamine spritz that lays down that context-dependent memory. We call it reward now, but in, you know, I don't think our bodies think of it as reward. They think of it as survival. But if you fast forward that to modern day, for example, when, you know, food is plentiful, our brains are still behaving this way because this is how our brains work. And so we start to learn things like getting stressed out. And if we eat, you know, if we eat chocolate, we feel better. And so there's that trigger, mm. you know, of stress. There's the behavior, which is stress eating, mm. right? That's different. You know, it's, it's interesting physiologically when we have physiologic stress, blood gets shunted away from our stomach and we're not hungry because our job is to run away so that we can survive to eat right. <laughs> in the future. But somehow in modern day, our brains have learned, oh, that dopamine signal of feeling good. And a lot of this probably has to do with, you know, the refinement of sugar and, and getting, you know, these, these hits of sugar and carbohydrate that send these big dopamine surges to our brain so that it acts more like a drug rather than something that's, you know, a source of calories to find later. Wow. So it's, it's a combination of the things that we've got the food everywhere, but it's not just regular food. So I, I wonder if we'd have the same effect if we just had whole foods available instead of the hyperpalatable processed Franken foods <laughs> that are available throughout. Um, well, you, well, you tell me, do, you, do they show pictures of broccoli on billboards that say craving? <laughs> but you know, that's interesting though. Um, Cause I, you know, I work a lot with parents. I have three kids myself, they're all grown now, but um, the, the interesting thing is that there was, I don't know if you're familiar with this research, but when they actually just took kids in a, in a, in a regular school lunchroom and they didn't put any special type of cartoon, but they put it like a carrot and he was like a little superhero or something, just a you know, regular character they saw a significant rise of eating with that. So it's interesting you're associating different things with food. And I, it goes back to that habit loop and the, they're like pleasure and seeing that. I don't know. It just seems very interesting. So it is. And I don't think that's a coincidence. <laughs> <laughs> I think that we just need to take a, a few lessons from the marketers and how they got us to eat poorly <laughs> and turn it around. Yes. Um, how did you decide, cause you're a psychiatrist by training and then, you went into um, your PhDs in what category? It's actually an immunology, but now I would consider myself more of a neuroscientist than immunologist. Okay. Wow. That's fascinating. Okay. You can even go down that track. Immunology is, fan is really cool. But now you have some really interesting stuff. So you also have The Craving Mind, your book that came out in February, I believe, of this year? Uh, the hard copy, Hardbound came out in 2017 and the... Okay. Yeah, this paperback came out this year. Okay, great. And so that would be, I'm working my way through. I haven't received it, so I had to do the Kindle version. Um, but really cool stuff there. And I encourage people to check that out. But can we talk a little bit about the smoking? Because I think this is really fascinating because I've actually been working with a patient for about two months now with your app and a few other things, and it's working really well. So if you can... Coming from <laughs> using this in practice now, and that's why I'm a big fan. Can you explain what it is, why it works, and kind of explain that a little further? Sure. Uh, and this was based on a bunch of research that I did back when I was an assistant professor at Yale, uh, just looking to see if mindfulness training would work to help people quit smoking. And I got into this because 
it's interesting, my, you know, my PhD being in immunology, I was interested in the stress immune inter interfa interface when, you know, like, why do we get sick when we get stressed out? And I was just practicing meditation on my own. And then when I started, when I went back to my third and fourth year of medical school and was on the wards, you know, I was noticing that my patients with addictions were speaking the same language as the stuff I'd been learning in my meditation practices. And I was thinking, this cannot be a coincidence. This was way before mindfulness got popular. So I didn't, there wasn't really much out there. And I decided to shift my career into studying mindfulness because I wanted to learn neuroimaging and neuroscience. I wanted to learn clinical studies. And I was really fascinated with the addictive process, especially because like these Buddhist psychologists had discovered this process <laughs> thousands of years ago. Mm. So we basically brought these principles into play and studied, you know, designed some clinical studies. And in my first smoking study, we actually found that mindfulness training was five times better than gold standard treatment. Mm -hmm. And when we started looking mechanistically at why it was working, it had to do with these informal mindfulness practices that we were teaching people. So we designed the Craving to Quit app based on that, you know, our clinical data uh, and our, our research. And it actually had, had taught me a lot of things that I had I'd made some assumptions that were actually not true and we could, we could update it based on the data. But basically the program works by starting, by helping people really see what it actually feels like when they smoke, mm. which is really important because, you know, people come to me and they come to you because they want to quit smoking, but they haven't quit. You know, in our first study, people on average had tried to quit five to six times before. So we, we start by having them pay attention, simply pay attention as they smoke, because that taps into their, their direct experience as compared to their cognitive thinking mind that says, oh, you shouldn't smoke. The, oh, you shouldn't smoke part of your brain, the prefrontal cortex, it goes offline when you get stressed out. And, oh, stress is a trigger for smoking, right? So... It, 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 that just inherently is problematic. And it's probably why the cessation rates currently are 5% you know, at one year. When people try to quit smoking, the likelihood they're gonna stay quit is, is 5%. So we said, well, let's take a different approach. Let's actually tap into these reward-based learning processes and have them pay attention. So they don't have to do anything. They don't have to force themselves not to smoke. We said, go ahead and smoke, smoke as much as you want but pay attention as you do. And universally, what they discover is smoking tastes like shit. Pardon my English. <laughs> I love right? it. So oh, yeah. their brain, there's a part of our brain called the orbitofrontal cortex. It holds relative reward value. And I think of it as the bigger, better offer part of the brain, the BBO. I don't know if you've heard that term before, but the idea is our brain is always looking for that bigger, better offer. What's better than something else? So for me, I don't know if you can relate to this. For me, it's chocolate, right? So my brain knows that 70% chocolate is much better than 40% chocolate. I won't touch milk chocolate, even if somebody shoves it in my face. No thanks. 70% is better than 40%. 85% is even better. And then you get into the brand, you know, like this brand over this brand and whatnot. <laughs> but my brain has this whole hierarchy of, you know, this chocolate hierarchy. And, and that's, that reward value is stored in the orbital frontal cortex. Well, that's happening all the time. Our brains are constantly looking. They're saying, what's better? You know, I have this option. What's better than this? So the first thing we can do is help our brains see this um, and see how unrewarding smoking actually is. It, it decreases that reward value. 
And that's critical because reward-based learning isn't based on the behavior itself. It's based on the reward. So if the reward is not that great, we start to become disenchanted with the behavior itself without having to force ourselves. It's kind of, I think of this as like, you know, your kid, you take your kid to the mall and um, she or he goes, sits on Santa Claus's lap, you know, and you're like, oh, great, I'm going to get the Christmas list and all this. And they reach for the beard and we're like, no, right? Because as soon as they pull on Santa Claus's beard, the gig is up. You can't go back and be like, hey, don't, you know, just forget that Santa Claus is real. It's over. And the same thing is true in our brains. When they start to see really clearly that the cigarettes don't taste very good, you can't undo that. I, I had a guy, he'd been smoking 40 years, and he's like, how did I not notice this before? <laughs> right? and, he, and on average, 40 years at a pack a day, that's 300,000 repetitions, roughly. Oh, my gosh. So I never he, did that. Yeah, yeah, it was that habitual for him. Oh, my God. So we got it. We have to tap into these the oldest parts of our brain to be able to break these habits. Otherwise, you know, the prefrontal cortex it's a goner. Three hundred thousand versus three hundred thousand push-ups that our brain just did. Forget about it, right? Right. Absolutely. So that's the first step: is helping people simply pay attention to what it tastes like, what it feels like. You know, what that super heated smoke feels like as it's going in their throat. And I can see from your expression, it doesn't feel very good. Well, just being around secondhand smoke, I downloaded your app. It's so funny. I've never smoked a day in my life. And it keeps telling me, today we suggest you smoke zero cigarettes. <laughs> <laughs> but I upload it because I show it to patients. And anyway, go ahead. I'm sorry. <laughs> so the interesting piece there is, as they start to update that reward value, there, this opens up space so their brain can say, okay, what's better than this? And it turns out there are a lot of mindfulness practices that actually feel pretty good. So we can train people to use, to get curious about what the sensations of craving feel like so that they can ride those out. And those practices specifically correlate with the likelihood that we can decouple the craving and the smoking behavior itself. And we've published several papers on this now, but the idea is it, it opens up the space when they're disenchanted to, and they're motivated. So, wow, this isn't very good. I need to, you know, I want to do something. We can teach them these simple practices where they can ride out the cravings in the moment that they come. And then they can start to decouple that reward-based learning association between, you know, stress or meal or whatever and smoking, right? The trigger mm -hmm. and the behavior simply through hacking that reward-based learning system. And, and if you're interested, we can talk more about, we actually found that this applies to many other behaviors as well. So we, we translated this into working with stress and emotional eating, and we developed this app called Eat Right Now, where we've got a 40% reduction in craving-related eating. We even did a study with physicians when we developed our anxiety program called Unwinding Anxiety. So we can talk about that as well, if that's interesting. Yeah, no, I've sent people to it as well. Okay, so, but back to the, your core question, yeah. The idea is if we can really help people understand how their minds work, if we can really help them map out this, this reward-based learning system and then hack it, this, is, this may lead to long-term benefit. We've even, we actually just finished a study um, where we've, we do neuroimaging. So we can show people, we put people in our fMRI scanner, show them pictures of smoking cues. It lights up a part of their brain called the posterior cingulate cortex. It lights up like a Christmas tree. And then we give them the Craving Equip program or a, a well-matched active control. We use the National Cancer Institute's Quit Guide uh, app. 
as an active comparator. And then a month later, we scanned their brains again. And what we found was that we can target specific brain regions with mindfulness. So we discovered these brain regions previously looking at experienced meditators. We could then take that in a hypothesis-driven way and show that this app specifically decreases brain activity in that region that's associated with getting caught up in craving, and that that decrease correlates with a reduction in cigarette smoking. So we see this very strong correlation, and we see zero correlation in the control group at all. Hmm. It's amazing. So we, we actually can map out the behavioral effects. We can map out the neurobiological mechanisms, and we can surprisingly, we can actually deliver this through an app, which I, I was a little skeptical when, when we first started doing this work. But now that the data are pretty, you know, pretty robust, it's, it's much more convincing to me. And so, and then have you done, you know, longevity studies on use of app in like a year out or two years out or how, how long is the success rate or is, where is that at? It's a great question. We've just applied for NIH funding to look at those. Uh, so with our mechanistic study, we looked a month out because that's what our neuroimaging paradigm um, worked with. Uh, we've done, we've got some other studies running where we can look six months out. Our first study that had uh, the, you know, the five times better quit rate, we, ha- we looked four months out. Um, so that's, that's, that's decent, but I think gold standard is six months. So we really need to look at those long-term data. Uh, see how they show, how they hold up. So can you explain a little bit about, for those who may, I have a lot of physicians in the audience, but explaining what a functional MRI is so that people understand what that actually means and how you're able to see inside the brain what's going on? Oh, sure. So basically, uh, typically we think clinically MRI is to help, you know, give us structural information to see if somebody, you know, has uh, a brain lesion or a tumor or a bleed or something like that. Um, with functional MRI, we can look at uh, what's called a bold signal, which is blood oxygen level dependent uh, signal, which basically means it's a surrogate marker of neuronal firing. So we can do these different mathematical sequences that don't look at anatomical structure per se, but they look at specific anatomical structures and can determine whether they're more active or less active. And so it's, that's why it's called functional MRI. So we can basically look at you know brain activity using uh, using functional MRI. It's fascinating that the the brain. I really should have gone into psychiatry. There's many fields I get intrigued in, but um, three pound mass uses up twenty percent of our glucose <laughs> that we consume because it's so metabolically active. So I think that's fascinating. It is. Um, can you talk a little bit? Because I have you know when you look at the prescription rate of medications for antidepressants, anti-anxiety medications. I constantly, whenever I see patients for, if I see a cold or if I see someone for the flu or their hypertension, their diabetes, you know, they're always listing, there's some type of medication there that's an SSRI, you know, medications for that. And there, it's always, anxiety tends to be the highest one, actually more than depression in my personal experience, such as anecdotal. Um, can you explain a little bit about the unwinding anxiety and where that, what you're describing is the mindfulness and how that works because it's outside of an addiction, I would think, or is it a, sim- a similar type of mechanism? I don't know. Or is it? Yes. Or is it? So, so certainly there are genetic um, you know, predispositions that folks have that make them more anxious than others. So, uh, but we don't have a lot of control of our genetics right now. Uh, so that piece, you know, if we, I just want to acknowledge that, but place that off to the side. 
uh, there's actually been a lot of research showing that anxiety can be can have learned elements to it. There was a guy Borkovic at Penn State that studied this for decades, where uh, basically a trigger can be an, a negative emotion, let's say fear. Then we have this behavior and worry thinking um, is that mental behavior that acts as a negative reinforcer because it feels less bad than fear itself. And it also can give us a sense of control or distract us from that unpleasant emotion itself. So if you think of uh, uh, fear being the trigger, worry being the behavior, and then you know a, a feeling of control or distraction or whatever being that quote-unquote reward, hmm. that starts to set this up as a negatively reinforced habit loop. The problem is, as our brain starts to become wise to the fact that worry isn't, doesn't feel that good in itself, mm -hmm. it starts to become less rewarding, but we're stuck in the habit loop because our brain says, oh, fear, worry, and then worry, oh, worry, worry, worry. And then we just start ping-ponging between one worry thought and another. I think of this as going over the event horizon in this black hole of anxiety. So anxiety itself has very you know, shares qualities or shares behavioral or mechanistic pathways with any other learned behavior. And all addictions fall into this, this type of habit loop formation. So when we learned that, uh, I, I said, well, can we actually develop this, you know, this unwinding anxiety program based on what we've been learning from our smoking and from our eating, our Eat Right Now program? Uh, because you know, we were seeing good results with both of these. And in my opinion, anxiety is even harder to conquer. Uh, for example, uh, one of our pilot testers, I remember her writing me an email saying, I feel like this is, I, she was so identified with anxiety. She said she felt like this was deeply etched in her bones. Right? Wow. This blanket of she wakes up in the morning and she's anxious and she's just anxious all day. And so to me, this was a great challenge. Like, can we... You know, if we can, I, I thought smoking was tough to work with. <laughs> it is. I thought eating was tough to work with because you don't have to smoke to survive, but you do have to eat. And so there are challenges there. And then we're getting these 40% reductions in eating. And so we're like, okay, you know, we can make some headway here. Can we actually help people unwind their own anxiety? So I took the most recalcitrant population I could think of, which is people like us physicians, right? We are horrible. Yes. We are horrible people. I'll I tell can, you. <laughs> I'll speak for myself. Uh, yes, I agree. Um, oh, know, I have some that are patients. That I can <laughs> so we have this martyrdom mentality that we probably learned in medical school. We have this armor up, you know, like don't show weakness, don't sleep, don't have to eat, don't have to do anything, <laughs> which is ridiculous, of course. We're not human. We're immortal. Right. <laughs> Right, exactly. which is why we have much higher burnout rates than the general suicide population rate. and suicide and addiction and on and on and on and on. So I figured if we could actually make headway with physicians, then we know that this program will work, you know, with the general population. Let's start with the worst population. I'm like, you're, you're really putting some burden on yourself. Okay. <laughs> well, you know, I think of this as, you know, it's this go big or go home mentality that one of my uh, PhD mentors used to say. So like, if you're going to ask a question, ask it. <laughs> <laughs> then everything else will be easier. It's absolutely, absolutely. And you learn a lot, you know, absolutely. you learn a lot from it. So we, we, we asked a simple question, like, could we get anxious physicians to use a program? Because they also, we also 
and I'll speak for myself say, oh, I don't have time. I'm busy. You know, I'm not. Yeah, hold this, you know, this, this air of, of busyness <laughs> as part of our persona, right? So, yeah, I'm sure we, many physicians can relate to this. I so, yes. so uh, the, the bad news was this was the easiest study that I've ever recruited for because when we sent out one email, uh, at, this is at our, our um, academic medical system, you know, in our network, and we got so many people, so many physicians who screened positive for anxiety and wanted to use the program. We didn't have to do any other recruiting. Wow. It was, yeah, I even had a friend who came to me and said, Judd, you know, I didn't qualify for your study. And I said, that's a good thing. You weren't anxious enough. Wow. So high, high prevalence. And, you know, when we looked at the, the baseline data, it's like, you know, um, some huge amount, like 50 or 60% of these folks had moderate to severe anxiety you know, um, half of them, I think, had, um, you know, reported burnout, you know, at least on a weekly basis, a quarter of them daily. So, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's tough. This is a real thing uh, in terms of physician anxiety and physician burnout, and the two are linked. Mm. So we just asked the question, can we get them to use this program, and will it reduce their anxiety? So we looked at, you know, the GAD-7, this clinically validated generalized anxiety disorder questionnaire that many of us use. On a as, daily basis. Yes, <laughs> tracking our, our patients. Yeah. And we found after just one month of people using the program, we found a 50% reduction in anxiety, which, was, which blew my mind. Oh. Uh, we'd seen some in pilot data with a general population. We'd seen reductions like that in folks with moderate to severe anxiety. But with, with physicians, I was, I was blown away. Um, and here's the even better part. We didn't mention the word burnout in the program at all. Hmm. And we got a 50% reduction in burnout, 50%, you know, roughly 50% reduction in callousness. The folks reporting that they're feeling callous toward others at their job and toward their patients. So the hypothesis was that if they could learn how their minds work and they could work with their anxiety, they could also learn to see other habit patterns that include things like feeling helpless at, you know, being able to make change at work, um, being callous toward their patients, and how unrewarding those things are so that their brain starts to change that as well. And that's at least my guess as to why we're also seeing reductions in these other symptoms because we don't, you know, we didn't teach them this stuff at all. So that's, that's, and it, it goes along the same framework as our other programs. You know, they get 10 minutes of training a day um, in the moment exercises, um, online community, if they want to use it, although I don't think a ton of the physicians used it, you know, all the resources that they would need to be able to fit this into their already busy life. Cause that was the other piece is we can't ask physicians to do a bunch of extra stuff. Cause then it's just going to feel like it's more burden, more anxiety. Yeah. So, so they can, they can sit on the toilet for 10 minutes a day and they must, you know, or whatever. <laughs> They can be, and this I know people. Speak only truth. I like it. <laughs> well, for some people, like the only quiet they have if they have a bunch of kids or whatever is like in the bathroom in the morning. I'm sorry. If you're a mother, that doesn't qualify either. <laughs> Their little fingers when they were little. Yeah, no, I get it. That's, <laughs> I don't recall actually. And even now you worry about your children, even though they're all grown up. I actually have one of my, one of my kids is a medical student. She's a second year and she's actually engaged to a medical student. <laughs> so I'm like, you guys didn't learn. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think I have some questions. So as you were talking about this, I, I really like positive psychology and spinning up things. You know, I, I like 
trying to prevent this for four years. And I was in the military as active duty. I was depe- you know, deployed overseas. And um, so I have a, seen a lot of stuff. And I'm curious, what do you think about like resiliency training? Because it, it just, it occurred to me that what you're describing, if we can get people taught this, like, or even medical students before they're physicians, you know, to teach it to themselves and do like you did, you started bringing this to your practice or to teach our soldiers, you know, this is, this is what this is. And then helping them when they are put in very stressful situations to sit back and maybe help decrease, you know, rates of PTSD and things like that. Is, is there any thought on that or have you explored that or know of any research into that? I actually wrote an entire chapter in my book on training resilience. book that I'm working on yeah. reading? Yeah. <laughs> in the Craving Mind, there's actually a, a chapter on training resilience. Oh, so briefly, and I actually use examples from, uh, from physicians in the medical profession for this because I think it's a beautiful example of, uh, you know, this term, you probably know the term empathy fatigue. Mm. Oh, yeah. So if we, so just think about this. If we work, if our patients are coming to us, they're usually, unless it's a wellness check or something, but if they're coming to us because they're sick, they're suffering, okay? And if we are being with their suffering, you know, let's say 40 hours a week, that's a lot of suffering that we're with. And if we're taught to empathize with our patients and the idea is to put ourselves in their shoes, then it, you know, it's a fact that we are suffering, right? If we're really putting ourselves in their shoes. So of course we're going to get burnt out and we're going to feel like we have to distance ourselves because it's, that's absolutely unpleasant and it's not, you know, that's not a long-term solution. Right. Yet this is all because we take, you know, we take things on or we take things personally. And this is actually where mindfulness comes in. It helps us see where we are becoming identified versus where we are just being with. So I love, I love the differentiation between empathy and compassion. And I think this is starting to be talked about more in the medical profession where uh, compasio literally means to suffer with, but it doesn't necessarily mean to suffer oneself. Right. So what mindfulness helps us do is to see when we are taking on the suffering of others versus suffering with. Because mm-hmm. there's, and there, we've even map this out into the into the neural structures that are actually um, the same structures that get activated when we get caught up in craving. When we get caught up in fear or pain, even emotional pain, there's this contracted quality that's like, oh, this hurts, right? That, it's actually part of a self-referential brain network. Uh, it's called the posterior cingulate cortex. It's the brain region. That brain region is a marker of the experience of the experiential self, Right? It's not necessarily the conceptual self, like I'm Judd, there, there are other brain regions that are involved in that, but it's, it's this marker that says, I'm, I'm holding, you know, it's, this is me experientially. So that, when that gets activated, we go into self-protective mode because it's painful. It's painful to get contracted. It's painful to feel pain, literally. So what mindfulness helps us do is to see that that, is the, you know, that part is optional. And we, we can be with suffering without taking that suffering on. And we can truly um, really be able to be in the shoes of our patients without suffering. And in that instance, when we are with suffering, but not identified with it, 
if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. There's this natural compassionate response that comes out. And this is, I think, the beauty of medicine. When we are at our best, we are totally in there, 100%, you know, understanding where our patients are coming from, being able to, you know, muster our resources in a way that doesn't fatigue us because compassion actually is energizing. It's not about us. We don't have to protect ourselves. We don't have to spend all that energy um, holding up that burden of protecting ourselves or taking on this, this patient's suffering. So that's, that's actually a lot of what I wrote this chapter about, but there's good data showing there's a paper study uh, published in the Journal of the American Medical Association um, by Mick Krasner and Ron Epstein, uh, probably a, almost a decade ago now, where they actually taught primary care physicians mindfulness. And they found a significant reduction in burnout in you know, all, the, all these measures of depersonalization and things like that, because these physicians were learning not to take on that burden. They were also learning that they could be with their patients even in a more connected way because they didn't have to protect themselves, if that makes sense. Interesting. So why isn't this taught in every medical school? Uh, medical schools are slow to change. Uh, so there are medical schools that are starting to teach these types of things uh, here at Brown University. Um, they are incorporating mindfulness training into the curriculum. Uh, and there are other medical schools that do this as well. Uh, so I think that, um, you know, that we really don't have an option not to teach these types of things. Uh, one, students can learn how their mind works. Two, they can learn how to not get caught up in anxiety habit loops, for example. So imagine helping students develop resilience skills before they take step one of the boards or before they go into their exams so that they can actually you know, be at their best as compared to be freaked out. Right. And take those good resilience skills into third year, into residency, into beyond residency. Boy, what a wonderful workforce we would have. So I have a kid that I told you about. It's a medical school. She's going to take her step one next summer. Mm -hmm. So where would someone like that or who's going to be entering into a stressful situation begin to even learn about mindfulness? Like how would they're like, okay, that sounds great, but now how do I start? It's a great question. We are exploring how best to do this. And so for example, I'm supervising a medical student who's doing his capstone project now looking to see if we could use simple things like this unlearning anxiety program in first year medical school. So we introduced this as a resilience training uh, as people start medical school and you know, explore how do we best incorporate something like this even into the curriculum. It could be part of the you know, uh, understanding cognitive neuroscience. It could be part of psychiatry. It could be part of a bunch of things. Hmm. But one thing we're testing is if we introduce it early, will this help develop these resilience skills at the time when they're open to learning, right? Uh, Introducing it right before boards, probably not a good idea because they're freaked out about their boards. They're not going to have any capacity to learn something new. Mm -hmm. And their brain is going to say, why am I doing this? I should be trying to memorize minutia or, or whatever, <laughs> whatever I do. I love this. <laughs> it's very true. <laughs> well, it's, it's funny because um, for me to get through medical school, I, my kids were 
five, three and 10 months when I started. And um, as a first year medical student, because I'd stayed home for six years and had my kiddos. And for me to, when I got through pharmacology and I had a grandmother who lived with us as well, my husband, and um, she ended up with breast cancer. I mean, we were, we were I was maxed. <laughs> and so um, the interesting one was, is I found drawing cartoons, believe it or not, like visual mnemonics is what we call them. And I literally survived medical school by drawing myself through it. And I think it kind of reinforced, it was such a, uh, craving. I almost craved drawing then because that's how I dealt with the stress. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it, and it blossomed into a great learning tool and it, you know, helped others and it was really cool. Um, but, you know, I, I look at these young physicians and, and residents and it, and it, it, you know, I don't know if you know, or you know, the work with Pamela Weibel, um, Dr. Pamela Weibel, she worked, so. she works a lot with um, families of residents and physicians who've committed suicide. And, um, it's just, it's just heartbreaking um, to see that. And it was just, I'm always, you know, racking my brain. What can we do? I, I do love, enjoy lifestyle medicine because it's teaching things like this to people and seeing people thrive is so invigorating and it's highly addictive. I call it, you know, my, I call it because I'm always encouraging good habits of eating, call it veggie crack. So it really is. If I get people to eat more vegetables, they feel better. You know, it's a small thing, but you, you do feel better. And it's, um, it's a very interesting thing. Hmm. This is fascinating. And that even hacks that same reward-based learning system because natural foods actually, you know, we our bodies feel better. So if we can really tap into that reward and compare it to the non-reward that comes from, you know, the, the designer food or the engineered food, our brains start to see that much more clearly. Interesting. You know, I found that one thing that works really well is I have patients kind of like a medical symptom questionnaire where they, before we even get them to tr- tremendously change their diet, because I work a lot with nutrition, um, quite a bit. And what they do is they forget, oh, I had aches in the morning and I had brain fog and I was just always tired or constipated, joint pain. And then what happens is I, it's almost a, it's a, it's a sort of a mindfulness yeah, trick. Yeah, you're helping say. them become aware of the cause and effect. And then we, we redo it in 30 days and they go back and they go, oh, wow. Because otherwise I think they would have forgot, you know, it's, um, it's interesting. Mm-hmm. I never really thought about um, the different things that I've found to be successful are basically bringing it to their attention and helping them work through what their, their goals are. Interesting. I have another question. <laughs> I'm, I know I get talked to you all day apparently, but the, um, so when I have forget people who I'm usually when people call me, I'm doing telemedicine. Now. I, I did regular practice for many years, but I did telemedicine for the last year and I've really enjoyed it because it's allowed me to see people all over the country. Um, but they're calling, they have bronchitis, they're smokers, you know, the, the typical patient. And, um, what I found is that you're, like you said, they've tried multiple times, they quit sometimes they, they don't feel well and that's a good time to enter and saying, Hey, let's work on stopping. But I found that if they haven't already made in their mind decision that I'm not a smoker versus I'm trying to quit, what is that difference? Is it, is it alignment with beliefs or it's like those who say like, I'm not a smoker, I'm not going to smoke. It's there's something that happens. Where is that? Is that just another mindfulness component? I wouldn't say that that is necessarily a mindfulness component. I can certainly see how that would be helpful because it could create some cognitive dissonance. So mm-hmm. if somebody says, I'm not a smoker, and they've got a lit cigarette in their hand, their brain says, wait a minute, there's something, <laughs> what's going on here? Right. And so at least it gets them to start paying attention and, and 
could help them bring awareness a little bit more. The mindfulness practices are really about helping us see that cause and effect relationship really clearly. Like you were talking about the benefits of eating healthfully. Right. If they're not seeing those cause and effect relationships, uh, it, it, not to say that these other practices can't work, but that that's not utilizing our best weapon, so to speak, which is right. reward-based learning. Wow. So where do you see this going then? Where do you see your your studies and your practice or where would you like to see it end up? Like what would be like all those years of work that you've been doing and, you know, those revelations that you've had, where would you like to see it? Hmm. That's a great question because we've been doing this work for about over 20 years now. Wow. And I feel like we're just at the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there, and we've certainly discovered a lot and made a lot of links and um, have found, you know, these things are, pragmatically used, but we're, we're seeing large reductions in these symptoms and, and, and behaviors. Yet, I, I, maybe I'm just never satisfied. Um, so what I'm looking to do now is to even personalize these trainings even more, where we can take uh, certain behavioral tendencies that people have and see um, based on, and this also links into operant conditioning, where some people are more, they lean more, you think of it as the fight, flight, freeze. So we have tendencies um, where some of us lean more toward fight, some of us lean more toward flight, and some of us lean more toward freeze. And this is actually described in the 5th century by a commentary on the ancient teachings of the Buddha. It's called the Path of Purification. Oh. And I, to my knowledge, it's the first example of personalized medicine. Because what they would do is they would observe people, how they acted, how they ate, what clothes they wore, and all this. And then they would prescribe specific meditation practices based on their, their types. And so we actually made a, a modern day version of this, uh, did all the you know, validation and whatnot. Um, it's called the behavioral tendencies questionnaire. People can look it up on PLOS One. Um, but the idea is to be able to take somebody's strengths that they already have, their own tendencies, and be able to personalize these trainings so that they benefit from them even more. So, you know, on a, on a population level, we're seeing pretty good results. I think we could, we could jack that even more by personalizing these trainings so that people come in, they know their strengths, and we can, we can train to their strengths. We can lean in there, um, and we can utilize those strengths so that they learn these things even faster and more robustly. Hmm. So that could be significant. I mean, I think about lifestyle medicine, telemedicine as well. What a great tool um, to use. Personalized medicine, you know, coming through your phone. You know, yeah. So I, I think mean, of these, uh, what Cornell West calls the, our phones are wep weapons of mass distraction. <laughs> <laughs> so, so if they're here... If we're already, if you're already in our pocket and distracting right. us, we might as well use them for good as compared to whatever, you know, whatever we get distracted for distraction. I almost think it should be even more than just like, you know, you get a little reminder or a buzz, but actually have them call and have a recorded voice and saying, Hey, we're calling you to remind you of this Facebook messenger emails, you know, all of that. Um, that is really interesting. I, I have so many ways I could go through this and I'm going, I'm trying to figure out which rabbit hole to dig down in the last 10 minutes here. Um, 
I would like to know a little bit more about what you're doing currently. Can you tell us about the Claritas Mind Sciences and what you're founded there? Sure. And the company just shortened its name oh. uh, to Mind Sciences. So okay. the no Facebook went to Facebook. Um, so following that path of simplicity, <laughs> uh, this, the company was actually founded back when I was at Yale um, because one of somebody came through and was looking at the work we were doing and was was really impressed with it and said, you know, I don't want this to languish in the ivory towers. And so I'd really like you to get this out there and help people. And you know, I was certainly on board with that because that's kind of dedicated my life to trying to be of service. And so we started developing uh, these programs and these these digital therapeutics six years before the term digital therapeutic had even been invented. Um, so we were actually early, early in the game and took the basic question of, you know, if, if this learning pathway is set up as a, a, to help people learn to form context-dependent memories, you know, they don't learn to smoke or to stress eat or to get anxious in my office. So can I package my office and bring it to them? And so we, took, we were taking our evidence-based training and we started developing, you know, these apps that we were talking about so that we can give them short bite-sized pieces, animations, you know, videos, things that would really engage them so that we could actually reach people in their own context. So we can deliver training when people, you know, we think of this as a point of care or not, not really a point of care, but on demand, you know, training. Mm -hmm. um, and people learn best in their own context anyway. So this might even, even be better. So the idea was born out of, of that need where we had good efficacy. We needed a better way to disseminate and also to maintain a very high fidelity. So we're finding that it's hard to uh, disseminate in-person training, both at a, a scalable, it's hard to scale that, and it's hard to train people to deliver it effectively at, at with 100 you know, with certainly with 100% fidelity, but even with good enough fidelity. Mm. Uh, therapists are good at being therapists, but they're not necessarily good at following a manualized treatment. Mm. So we said, let's, let's take all those variables and fix them so that you know, they, we know exactly what people are getting. Let's deliver it to them where they don't have to get childcare. They don't have to come in for an appointment and they can get this on a daily basis because that's how we form habits is daily, 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 daily. You know, we think of the short moments many times and we use that a lot in our programs. Um, you know, a short moment of mindfulness helps you develop a healthy habit over time as you do it more and more and more and more. Right. So yeah, Mind Sciences was born out of that to um, just, you know, help move this stuff into the marketplace because uh, an academic medical center isn't the place for that. So we partner, my lab partners with Mind Sciences. They develop um, the app-based training and then, you know, my lab can research it. Um, and and it's, it's been a really good partnership in that way. Cool. Because I would think, so I see that, so you have the eat right now, the unwinding anxiety and the craving to quit. And those are the three programs that you have currently, correct? Yes. Okay, so this is this is coming from my end of thinking, and I'm going, geez, if I had this. So instead, I'm having to tell my patient, okay, I want you to go download this app, and I literally have it on my phone. It's like the little wave guy. <laughs> I want you to go download. I want you to use it. Come back to me. But if I could just click a button, so I work for Doctor and Demand, and one of the telemedicine folks, um, very progressive, very um, 
good, it's a good place. And um, if I could just click boom and it's delivered to them and saying, here, download this app, um, just like I can order labs, I can order medications. I think that'd be phenomenal. I think that's a great idea. So I think that's probably the next generation as we start um, vetting these digital therapeutics. So all of ours are evidence-based, but there are many out there that aren't. And mm -hmm. so uh, folks like Doctors on Demand have to vet you know, what, you know, what's worth telling their patient to do and then figure out a, um, a prescribing and, and you know, we think of it as a reimbursement thing as well. But we should, you know, this would be a great this type conversation. Of thing. Yeah. yeah. And this type of thing is the next generation where you've just described minimizing those, um, those hurdles to actually getting people evidence-based care. Absolutely. And there's so many things that are evolving. Cause when I first started doing telemedicine, I was like, how am I going to do this? Like someone's calling me for this and that. So I had to rethink how I'm addressing them. I'm visually seeing them um, rethink how I ask questions regarding symptoms. And it was good for me. It expanded my mind. It actually really made me think about the physical exam a different way. Um, so it was really very good. Um, but well, then I'm going to end this podcast real quick so I can ask you this question. <laughs> well, thank you, everyone. for And thank you so much, Dr. Brewer, for spending time with us. Is there any bit of, um, and of course, I'm going to put links to everything, the Craving Mind, everything, all the apps. And I always like to ask, is there one bit of advice you would like to um, send to someone, maybe who's someone who's struggling with an addiction of any kind. It could be shopping, it could be eating, it could be smoking. Um, what would be the first bit of advice that you would give to someone who's even just beginning to open their mind to change? That's a great question. I think I would simply say, whatever that behavior is, pay attention as you do it. Look at the result. Look at that cause and effect relationship, because that's that's the beginning of behavior change. Mm. Just pay attention. That's awesome. Excellent. Well, thank you everyone for listening. And um, again, please click all the apps or the, excuse me, the links below and you'll see everything that you need. <laughs>